Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Chatter. Our episode today is on caregiving, which is actually uh, connected with our show that we did previously on um, Alzheimer's and um, dementia. And we realized, you know, there's two sides to the equation, really. There's those people that are actually suffering, in this case, from, uh, from these kinds of conditions. And not just Alzheimer's or, or dementia, but chronic conditions as well. And then there's the other side, which is those that have to help by providing uh, some caregiving services. And in many situations, it turns out to be um, family members. So we'll get into that. We have great guests today that are gonna tell us their, their stories and um, as hard as they may be, but um, you should know that um, your care is, a, is greatly appreciated for sure. Okay, and what, what you do, it's not only, believe it or not, it's not only for what you do for the person that you're providing the care for, but um, in many ways you're doing a service for a community as well by providing that type of, of expertise. So thank you to you. We'll be introducing our guests in a second. As we always do, we like to like to recognize our, our staff and my great colleagues. So um, our research background people are Maddie Levine-Wolf and, and Aaron Collins provide great insights and statistical background for all the various subjects on health chatter that you are listening to audience have heard about. So thank you to the two of you. And also Matthew Campbell is our production manager who, who provides us with all the logistics for the show, making sure that it's seamless and gets out to all of you, our listening audience. Then of course, there's Clarence Jones, who I always say I, I provide a virtual hug every time we do a show, because he's a great colleague. Love doing this show with him. Provides really insightful ideas as it relates to, to the community. So thank you very much to you. Also the Human Partnership, who's our sponsor, who's a great uh, community organization that provides useful information to the community. And, and by the way, Human, H-U-E-M-A-N, is um, I'm sure purposeful in the sense of it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It really is more a function of how we as human beings all work together to be healthier in this case. So thank you to everybody. Today's show on caregiving, we have two great guests. I'll, I'll let Clarence introduce one that he's connected with. And you, everybody in our listening audience will understand that in a second. But I'll, I'll introduce um, Michelle Phillips. Michelle uh, was uh, introduced to me by a, a colleague of mine at the uh, Minnesota Department of Health, Kelly Ratz. And uh, Kelly told me, this person has a story to tell as it relates to, to, um, to caregiving. So um, Michelle is a, a culinary writer and photographer, avid cook and baker, good time of the year to be a baker, a boater, <laughs> gardener, rescue dog mom. So all of us who like dogs, me for sure. Um, 
So thank you for that. Stepmother to three adult sons and to two incredible hockey stars. Wow, lots of good stuff here. Wife, sister, daughter, friend. So all these great things that you can almost encapsulate into one word, a good caregiver. So Michelle, thank you. Thank you so much for, for, for being with us. Clarence, now I'm gonna pass the baton on to you and you gotta be careful introducing this person because I know who she is, yeah. so go for it. Yeah, well, thanks Dan <laughs> and thank the crew because uh, I wanted to, um, to uh, bring my wife on who is a caregiver, uh, especially around this particular topic. Uh, a little bit about Deborah. Deborah just recently retired from the Minnesota Vikings after 30 years. Uh, she is a wonderful, she's a wonderful cook, a wonderful partner, a wonderful uh, community member. Just, she's just, she's just wonderful. I mean, I would have like a thousand adjectives for her in terms of how great she is. Uh, but she also puts up with me. But I also thought it was important to bring her on because Deborah also has a, a, a story to talk about, uh, about caregiving. But I also, whenever I talk about this topic, this is how I describe myself. I'm a caregiver of a caregiver. And let me tell you, that wore me out. So if that wore me out, I can, I can only imagine watching her and, listen, and getting ready to listen to Michelle on, on the stories that we're going to hear, why it's so important to talk about this topic and how do you take care of yourself? So uh, with that being said, let's get into the program, Stan. All right, so um, a lot of background um, information for this show. And I invite our listening audience to go to our website after you listen to the show to, to read up on a lot of the information that is uh, provided to us by our research gang here, but statistically for sure. But this should get us going. The, the, just listen to these. Approximately, this was, by the way, this was back in 2015. This is pre-COVID now. Think about what happened during COVID when I give you this statistic. 43 and a half million caregivers have provided unpaid care to an adult or child in the last 12 months. That was in 2015. Okay, so now fast forward all the different things that have gone on uh, during the pandemic, which has probably just increased that by an incredible amount. The majority of caregivers, about 82% care for one other adult, while 15% care for two adults and 3% for three or more. It's, it's kind of overwhelming when, when you think about it. 65% um, of, the, of the caregivers are female with an average of age of 69.4. Um, I mean, these are really overwhelming when you really think about it. And um, usually it's caregivers that are providing care. Guess what? They have something else to do besides the caregiving that they're, that they're providing. So let's start the show out, Michelle. Um, you know, maybe the best way to, to deal with this, this topic is tell us the story, okay? Uh, tell us a caregiving story that can kind of put this whole idea of caregiving in perspective for our listening audience. Go ahead. Um, a caregiving story. 
Well, I'm, I'm, I just found out, this is one statistic I wasn't aware of, but I'm part of the 15% that have two adults that I'm caring for. Um, my dad is in memory care and my mom has been in um, transitional care in a skilled nursing facility in and out since March. Um, I have learned more than I ever wanted to know <laughs> about the topic of um, um, elder care, um, elder health, uh, memory issues, um, legal issues, financial issues, you know, dealing with the hospitals. One of the saddest and most unfortunate things, as you mentioned, is that, um, you know, with regard to how things have happened since COVID, the healthcare workers that are available that can help our elderly population are at a minimum right now. I mean, they're, um, they're stretched beyond, beyond. And um, it's just, it's more difficult to get the care needed or the time needed or the resources needed because they're just, they aren't there. Um, for example, in-home care, um, you know, there's only so much that Medicare will pay for. There's only so much available, um, whether it's skilled nursing or in general, um, you know, PT, OT, that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's just been kind of a, an ongoing journey, if you will, <laughs> trying to figure out what the answers are. Um, we have a very, you know, good, healthy, happy situation for my dad. He's stable, he's healthier. And, and although he doesn't even know who I am, he does, he knows who I am, um, but he thinks I'm his sister. <laughs> um, he thinks my brother is his deceased brother. He is very much past, you know, in the past, um, in, a, in a really good place. Um, mom's not so much. She's still thinks everything is fine. Um, everyone is against her. The world is definitely defying her. Um, and it's sad, really sad to see someone in their early eighties, um, not enjoying life the way they could, because it's just kind of a hard, it, it is a really hard battle with, if you think about one day life is as you know it. And the next day, um, my dad fell, the ambulance took him, they wouldn't let him go back home. And then health issues and, and all kinds of things started happening for her just a few months later. So it's just like, when that much changes after many, many years of just doing what you do, um, it's just a hard role to sort of slide into graciously, gracefully, mm -hmm. um, which I understand. I totally understand. So. So um, Deborah, give us your, your, perception on, on, on this caregiving idea. Sure, sure. Um, I have to agree with Michelle in so many ways in that no one really trained you for senior care. You are living your life and all of a sudden, all of these things start triggering. Uh, for me, uh, both of my parents, uh, they were sick at one point, but then they began to get better. And I'm like, okay, I could breathe again because things began to get easier, but my father's health continued to decline. He passed away. And so then my responsibility, and I knew just because of my personality, I was gonna be there for my mother through thick and thin. Um, so she moved into an apartment, she was doing fine, but I began to notice things. She, she stopped doing quite a few things. And I wasn't sure if she was mourning or if there was something else going on. So years went by, but it 
kept progressing. And I uh, took her to a doctor and asked the doctor about dementia. Um, some of her sisters had it. And so that just brought to me that I need to check into this. And um, she was finally diagnosed. And um, so we were, I was still giving her care in her apartment. But again, things began to, her, her memory began to decrease. She caught some kind of bug, some kind of flu bug. I don't know exactly what it was. But from then on, she just could not maintain herself. She went into the emergency. Um, and she, from there, she spent time in the hospital. And um, then she went into a skilled facility. And all this time, I'm trying to navigate something that I've never had to do. When my father was sick, my mother was there and she really uh, directed things. And so then it, it just really fell on me. I have two older brothers. And um, so it, it really came to me and I was, I was okay with that because somewhere in me, I knew that I was gonna have to uh, walk this um, path with my mother. But while she was in that uh, care facility, you, you do have to make time to go by and check up on the people who were giving your loved ones care. Because if you do not, um, there are things that are happening and people are making decisions for your loved one. And that is something that you just don't want to have um, out there. You wanna be able to be involved and make decisions and make sure that the decisions that they're making for the best care of your loved one. Who knows your loved one better than you? Right. So let me so, ask you, let me ask both of you, um, the, the care that you were, the caregiving that you were providing, did it first start out at home or at their homes? And then it transitioned into like a, a long-term care facility or a skilled nursing, or was it, abrupt. It's just like, wow, they got to go now into a, a facility. Uh, what what happened with you, Michelle? It was very abrupt. Um, it was abrupt. I got a call saying my dad had fallen outside the home. Mm -hmm. uh, the neighbors couldn't find my mom. <laughs> she was in the house um, and they called the ambulance and took him to a hospital. And he was... Um, he was very, he was in a very different place. He was looking for his keys. He was going to drive to Chicago and go find a guy that he knew 50 years ago, or maybe never. Um, it was just a, it was a sad story. And when my brother visited him that night at the hospital, he, he called and said, Oh my God, I don't think he'll make it through the night. Like it was, it was in very dire. Well, and we, there were a lot of phone calls. There were a lot of emails. There were all of a sudden social workers, hospital social workers in our lives. We've never had anything to do with that. We had no yeah. going on. Um, they were looking after two weeks in the hospital, they were looking for a long-term care facility, a memory care facility for him. Um, <clears throat> and once again, you know, you have the confusion of not knowing anymore what's really going on but then you have the confusion of being thrust into a medical facility um, or a different, a, just a different location altogether. 
Um, so my dad was trying to, you know, rock around like he had been doing for years. Uh, and he had always had really st- a big struggle with balance and falling, which we found out, um, unfortunately, well after he um, moved out of the home, if you will. Um, and he was just trying to exist the way he'd always existed. So it took him quite a bit of time uh, from September 29th, two weeks later into a long-term care facility. And then by November 10th, we brought him to where he is now, which is his home. This is, this is what he knows. And he says on a regular basis, he's so thankful for this. And he never imagined he would have a yard like he has. It's a courtyard with wildlife and everything. And they call it his window. And, and that's where he sits and he enjoys his days. Mm-hmm. Um, so it literally came on uh, with a bang <laughs> and it came on without, I wouldn't say without warning, Um, But I would say it was, it was tough because I, you know, you have two parents involved and one parent um, was just kind of existing really. And the other parent was saying, nope, everything's fine. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to deal with it. It's just, it is what it is. Um, And so, yeah, it came abruptly. And then in, at the end of March, it came on abruptly again, when I received a call from Hennepin County Adult Protection Services for my mom. Um, and that's a whole other snowball that uh, is still still rolling down the hill at a fast pace. So um, it's back to what Deborah said. There is no training for that. I mean, nobody prepares you for this. Um, if in an ideal world you have a scenario where you can work into it and make sure the plans are made and um, make sure that there are some standing and, and you're working together. I mean, that is that is everything that I think everyone if you had the choice, that's how it would go. You know, you could, you could help. I jumped in with both feet because my parents need help. My mother needs help. My dad's taken care of. He's good. We check in, we bring meds. We have a great relationship with the staff that helps, you know, helps him every day. Um, But we have a very combative scenario with my mom, which is hard. I always say that all the brochures and all the websites have these pictures of happy, you know, elder parents with their smiling children and everyone's hugging and happy and there are daisies and butterflies. And, um, and I wish that that's the way it could be for everyone, but it's not. And so I sound a little more on the negative side, but in reality, I'm told even by my mom's physicians and, and um, a lot of other professionals are like, this is, this is more common than not. It is typically the daughters who have the most difficult relationship. Um, It is, it does happen a lot. Her physician, frankly, out of frustration, called me one night and said, well, the next time this happens, <laughs> we're going to do this, this, and this. Um, we're still in the third round of ER, hospital stay, TCU. Um, the professionals in her life have determined that she should go to assisted living. But here's something I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard this. As long as the person thinks that they're okay, they can make as many bad decisions as they want period. Um, there is nothing you can do as long as they think they're okay. They're a lot, they can just go on. My mother still has the home, um, all the bills, all the upkeep, all the everything. Plus now paying $13,000 a month out of pocket because Medicare is no longer covering her expenses because of the frequency and duration of her stays in a transitional care unit. Um, but that's, her choice, her call. Um, it's really hard, especially when you 
are raised by parents who made sure that you knew when you were doing stupid things. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, it's really hard to watch that happen. And it's really hard to not be able to, to do anything about it. Um, my mother has actually just revoked our power of attorney. So if something happens to her, mm. we can do nothing, nothing. Wow. We have no access to bank accounts because she doesn't want everyone to take her money and put her in a home. <laughs> um, these are really tough, yeah. really tough things to have to think about. But um, at some point, you just have to stop doing the same things over and over and expecting different results. At some point, you have to make a change for yourself and others. You have to listen to your spouse, your partners, your friends, your family, you have to listen to yourself. You have to stop denying your life and you have to figure out how to move on and allow them to move on. You can't have the decision. You can't make the, the choices that you wanna make. It's still their life. It's still everything that they're doing. Um, and I have personally seen a lot of flaws in the process, um, but it, you know, it is what it is. It just is it's a, it's a really tough scenario. And again, with the professionals being as sort of limited as they are in time and resources, you can't expect that everyone receives the time and, and care and, and okay. attention that they need. I mean, it's just, you have to get in and, and move on and, and move out. Go so on to the next Deborah, let me, let's ask the same question for you. Then I know Clarence has a question for you. Um, how abrupt was it for you? Was it, did it happen like in Michelle's case, it happened, boom, just like that? Or how did it happen for you and, 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 your, and the people that you cared for? Well, we had a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, my father, uh, thank God, he, he had the foresight to sit our family down and talk about things. Mm. And so we put a plan in place when my father was still alive and he wanted me to begin, you know, taking care of the business of running the house and the finances and those things. So I had power of attorney mm -hmm. um, at some point, you know, early on, I'll put it that way. And then um, my mother, after my father passed, uh, my mother totally told me to do everything. So I paid all of her bills. I was involved in everything. I took her to the doctor. I talked to the doctor. And my mother's, her personality was really mild. I, I've, I've, I've talked to and I've seen um, patients with Alzheimer's have just a really uh, different um, personality where they're angry and combative and those types of things. That's a part of the disease. And there were times my mother was like that but then her attitude would change just like that. And she would be mild mannered again. Yeah. Um, even in her um, confused state, she was a type of person who imagined that she owned the uh, facility that she was at. She said, you know, my dad bought this facility for us. So if something happens to me, I want you to split the money and give it to everybody. So that's the kind of personality she was. Even in her confused state, she had a heart for other people. And so um, my mother's situation was a little different, but still uh, from a caregiver perspective, I didn't know how to navigate Medicare. I didn't know how to navigate, uh, especially during the pandemic when I could not actually see my mother. 
I didn't know what was going on in that care facility, but they set up um, video chats and they were there to assist her. And my mother being the positive person she was, she painted a very pretty picture. Well, when the doors began to open, there was one uh, male nurse that kind of, we gravitated toward each other. And I would ask him questions about my mother. And he shared with me that at some point during the pandemic, he said it was really crazy up there and they had found my mother on the floor. I don't even think I've shared that with, with Clarence, but that's, that's what happened. And I just could not let my imagination go down that road because when I saw her, um, when the doors opened again, she was always in such good spirits. Even when we did video chats, she was laughing, she would sing, she would talk about her, her siblings. Uh, she thought they were still living. But um, she was the last of 13. Um, so she had a positive demeanor about her. So, it, yes, so I was thrown into it from, uh, to wrap it up real quick, from not really knowing how to navigate elder care. Just from my own love for my mother threw me into a state of protective mode. What can I do to help her? What can I do to support her? Yet I have my own family life, a, a busy work schedule. Um, and even in that, they were very flexible. When I got the phone call that my mother was in the emergency ward, they just said, go. And I didn't have to go back. They didn't call me. They didn't, you know, they didn't hunt me down, make me accountable. You know how some jobs do. I, I had flexibility there. So, so you know, it's interesting, Fa family caregivers, get a lot of this, <clears throat> spend an average of 25 hours a week providing care. Now, that's on the average. Clarence, go ahead. Yeah, and they do that without pay. And without pay, yes, of right. course. So the question I want to ask is this, is as a caregiver, how did other people respond to you in your caregiving role? Uh, Deborah mentioned she had brothers, uh, Michelle, I don't know if you if you mentioned your other uh, siblings or not, but uh, I think uh, it would be good to talk about how you felt as a caretaker uh, and how other people responded to you in that particular role. Um, I'm still actually struggling with the term caretaker because I don't feel like I am because it's not my mom is not allowing that. Um, I did jump into the whole field of, of medical assistance and it took a month and a half to literally weed through paperwork um, on my dad's behalf. Um, I had to go into my mom's house. Uh, she was in the, in the facility and dig through years worth of bills and papers and all these things to find the stuff and scan it in and send it to the county so that they could determine that um, for him. Um, mom had been working on it quote unquote, for months and was over $40,000 in arrears to my dad's facility. And we got the call that they were going to pre begin pre-termination proceedings, if you will. Um, and so my brother and I, I do have a brother, a younger brother, um, went in and um, took over as much as we could. We both had the power of attorney at the time. And um, we promised to make the payments that we could. We told mom exactly which checkbook we we're going to write it out of and, and start making the payments. And it took quite a while, like I said, 
um, we finally got the medical assistance in hand. Um, uh, how did people react? My brother, um, we both come from a very uh, short, short-tempered family. <laughs> we don't have a lot of patience, um, and and I, I really struggle with the fact that we can't really resolve anything with this, and that's kind of probably the most difficult part. For my brother, who has two very, very busy children and a business um, that he has to run and everything else, he's like, he's like, you tell me what you need, but I, I just can't be there on a on a regular basis. Um, but when I can't go, he does, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so we, and he listens to all the stories and he, <laughs> here's the frustrations. Um, if I was actually just at a family uh, funeral visitation and every single person approached me and asked how my parents were. There were lots of side eyes, if you will. Um, there were some comments. There was one uncle who never even made eye contact. And I know that they have a regular contact with my mom there um, on the phone um, had a church elder calling out of concern for her that said well you know there comes a time when you just have to step up and the, the child has to become the parent and you have to do the right thing and you just have to make the tough decision and you have to tell her what's going to happen now and I said do you realize that that isn't even reality I mean that's just mm -hmm. not an option um it's just not, unless I hire my own attorney and, and go, you know, down the, the ugly, ugly road of, of demanding mm -hmm. conservatorship and guardianship and, and, and taking court action. I, this is just not an option. She's fine, she says. And so she can do whatever she wants and I have no control even with power of attorney. Um, but especially without, it's okay. tough. Um, lots of friends and family. Um, there are some people who have literally turned their back I can't believe you're doing this to her. I can't believe you don't do more. Um, there are a lot of people that are really critical because they assume based on one side of the story, based on conversations with my mother, who is mm -hmm. very upset that her children don't come see her often enough. And even though I was just there yesterday to take her to a, a medical appointment, and this is figuratively, literally yesterday, um, you know, she hasn't seen us in months. And it's like, you, there is... Wow. I was literally covering 40 to 50 hours a week in medical assistance, phone calls, emails for the both of them, and then trying to maintain what little work I could keep up with and my household and my marriage and my family and friends. There was just nothing. And pretty soon it all became zero um, because there was no capacity anymore. Yeah. Um, and the frustration part is, is, a, is a tough one. Yeah, because you just you're you're just done. So let me end. yeah let me share this story with you before Deborah respond to this. I think one of the things one of the places where I really became really interested in this issue around caregiving was when I heard the story about a family where a mother was accusing her son of stealing her money, mm. and it tore that family apart. Even though the son was not doing that but it was because of the, the disease that she was making these stories up. And I, I mean, I literally cried when I thought about the fact that uh, this disease was so destructive that it could turn loving people into, I mean, just into vicious, vicious mean people. people. Yeah. yeah, yep. And so anyway, so Deborah, I, your, your turn, but, I, but, I, but that, that was what drove me to, to really un, try to understand this topic and understand the diseases. When it, came, when it comes to family, 
I, um, I begin to assign my, well, let me start here. First of all, I was very frustrated because you feel like you're doing everything and you're wearing yourself out emotionally and physically. Um, so I, I was in a caregiver's group that helped me mm. immensely. They began to talk to me about the family and how all the caregiving responsibilities can tear a family out. And the one thing you cannot do is be a martyr. So when I learned those things, I began to really ask my brothers what they can do and not complain, but accept what help they would give and thank God for it. So when my mother was, um, she was diagnosed, but she had her own apartment. My brothers would go and wash her clothes and they would clean her apartment. And so that, those were heavy lifts that I no longer had to do. But I was there with the bills, doing all of her shopping. And it, I realized how important that was. I used to purchase this body wash for my mother. And I noticed that I wasn't purchasing it as much as um, I had been in the past. So I asked her about it. And she sheepishly said, I'm afraid to take a shower in my apartment by myself because I might fall. Mm. And so when I just had that open conversation, we began to get somebody to be in the apartment with her so that she could do that. So I, I, I um, involving family gives you an opportunity to really give care on another level. My family was very supportive. Um, even if they didn't ask, I would bring them into a conversation and tell them about what the doctor said. I would tell them about mom's finances. Um, and I always told my family members, what money she has is hers. Don't think about an inheritance because every dime she has is going to go to make her life happy and to pay for her expenses. So we understood those things up front. And because, again, I had the advantage of them bringing me in on an early, uh, a early level, I had their tax returns. I had my mom's tax returns. Um, there was a situation where one of her Medicare checks was fraudulently taken. And so then I began to even be the, uh, they call uh, a representative, a social security representative. So I knew the checks were coming and all of those checks and balances, you know, those things that you just have to be aware of. Um, and when I was out of town, because oftentimes I would have to go out of town while I was working, I had family members, cousins, first cousins that are just like brothers and sisters they would go by and see my mother. Um, I had one cousin who took her clothes home and washed them. I never left her clothes just to the facility. That was one part of my caregiving that I could still do for her while she was in the facility. I would go and get her dirty clothes, bring them home, wash them, put them on hangers and take it back. Mm. 
So um, I would even put her outfits together. My mother was a woman who loved to dress. And so the care facility, they appreciated me putting her outfits together and she enjoyed that. Um, so getting family involved as much as you can, I, I think is important. And then what you can't do, um, Michelle, you said something earlier that resonates with me as well. You have to let it go. You have to give self-care because if you are giving yourself away to everybody else, you have nothing left for yourself. You have no strength for yourself right, right. and, and you, you need some strength. Um, so, so let me, let me ask a, a, a couple of things here. Cause I see some, some differences in, in, in the stories here. Um, when we talk about caregiving, you know, Clarence and I have linked caregiving in this sense to a previous show, namely, you know, around Alzheimer's and, and dementia. But caregiving can be long-term, which obviously, you know, the two of you are, are talking about. By the way, the average length of time for caregiving, like the two of you are, are providing, um, nationally is around four years. Okay, before somebody passes away. Okay, for instance, okay, that's the average. All right. But there's other forms of caregiving too. like, for instance, somebody is hospitalized for a procedure. And all of a sudden, um, you know, they have to go home, like I'm involved with, with patients who have had their knees replaced. And yes, these patients, I would say 90% of them have their wits about themselves. But they need caregiving at home, you know, when they're going through recuperation. So there's what I would dub short term caregiving. And then there's longer term caregiving. So the other things I'm going to bring up to the both of you and get your responses is around two variables. Long one is long distance and the other is safety. All right, so I'll use let's talk about long distance for a second. Let's just play this out that if the two of you were not in the same city or town as your parents, how would caregiving play out in that sense? Let me let me put let me let me give you a for instance like if you know if God forbid I was in that kind of a situation where I was losing my mind and demented etc. My kids, you know, and put my wife aside just for a second. Our kids are out on the East Coast. Okay, so let's play that out a little bit. How do you think that that variable would would play in the caregiving mode, Michelle? Maybe your ideas on that. Um, <clears throat> I think that would add difficulties uh, immensely. I, I think it would be a lot harder because you can't just get in the car and drive 10 minutes to mom's house and help with that project or yeah. pick her up for an appointment or, um, or whatever. I mean, I, I can't even imagine, frankly, Yeah. but um, I'm going to reference and, and I'm going to go back to what Deborah said about her dad having the wherewithal to set things up and to organize things ahead of time. Um, and I, <laughs> I've become probably the best proponent or the best fan of TED Talks lately because TED Talks on this topic um, have been incredibly helpful, as have some books mm -hmm. and other resources. Because learning, learning about 
the things that are probably going wrong has been, or going on, I should say, um, has been one of the biggest ways that I've helped myself kind of cope with it, deal with it and, and um, manage it. Um, but if you were to able to, again, going back to what Deborah said about her father, if you were to organize things in advance, um, where you actually had local resources and you had, you know, the kids had power of attorney and everyone had like a process. Um, I actually think that's the key to everything. Preparation, planning, being open and honest, open discussion. Um, this is this is a very hard conversation to have yeah. in general, the whole topic. It's really hard um, for some people. And I know my mother has always had issues with trust. So there's that. Um, and, and I think, Definitely, it has gotten worse now. Um, but if you have sort of that plan in place, um, which they sort of did, but then she revoked it, literally, just because I said, well, I can help you with medical assistance too. The next day, she called the attorney and said, nope, I don't want anything to do with this. That nobody can have control over me. Um, and I'm saddened that that was that easy. That it was that easy and, and the letter that I received that she received fairly clearly spelled out like this is all the thing these are all the things that can go wrong if you do this um I I don't even want to think what, what's going to happen yeah yeah but if you have that opportunity to plan ahead to talk to the kids out of town um yeah. I guess that in my opinion in my experience that would be the best um, thank Deborah, you. It's not you a pleasant think? conversation, but you got to have it. Right. Deborah, what do you think about long distance? You know, it's just like you happen to be here where your 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 parents resided. Imagine for a second if you weren't. How do you think that that would play out? Would it be a similar type of recommendation that Michelle just told us about? That's so hard to imagine. It's just so hard to imagine being out of town. And uh, part of my personality is, like I said, is to be there uh, yeah. because you see things that are not communicated on a telephone call. You see things um, just by watching. You don't have to always talk. Sometimes you just watch a person and they will, they will give you indications about what's going on in their life. When I stepped into my mother's apartment, uh, a woman who was uh, pretty neat and tidy uh, but um, as she was aging and the, the dementia was getting worse, she had a pile of mail for at least six months that she was saying she was going to get to. But because I saw that, I would go through and pull out all the important things. And at that point, I would even have the important mail come to my house so that I wouldn't have to worry about that. But it, it would, you would have to trust somebody in the community to check on that person, you would have to have some trusted friends to check yeah. in on that person. And just, I can't imagine the calls that you would have to be on with medical, uh, the medical team, just to find out what's going on uh, physically and uh, as well as mentally with your, your loved one. So from a prevention, we often talk about this on a variety of different topics over health chatter episodes is prevention. So would one component of prevention be to somehow or other family-wise plan 
so that yes, there is somebody in the same city or town so that it would be easier or plan out those logistics ahead of time. What do you think? Is, is that the, a prevention mode that, that's worthwhile? I would, I would say that having an open, open honest dialogue with your okay. family is so key. And people's feelings will get hurt. But if you know, you got to get past that so that you come up with a solution and know that it's not about you, it's about the one you're giving care for. Yeah. Life at that point is not about you, it's about them. Yeah. And I always put a priority that my mother and father gave me a good life when I was a young child. What can I do to assist them um, as they're down? I may not be able to do the whole list of things they may want me to do, but <clears throat> there is a compromise there. So everyone is getting needs met. So um, safety. So here's something I remember my mother um, who was living by herself because at that point my, my father had had long been been gone and um, and she was frankly doing fine, et cetera, et cetera. And then lo and behold, she came down with a urinary tract infection, which um, for many really causes a real downfall literally and figuratively, okay? Um, and at that point, it was, I remember distinctly my sister and I assessing the concept of safety. Where is it safe for mom to be, okay? And even though she had her, you know, her wits about her after she, she had the UTI taken care of, um, that was the next discussion. You know, it's similar to when do you take away their their keys to the car? You know, same idea. Those those types of things are like the steps. You know, as 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 people age. So, Clarence, I want to pull you in because you saw your your wife um, providing caregiving, and um, you had a. Um, you had a particular set of glasses on, I'm sure. Um, tell us about you and how you saw this caregiving playing out from your perspective and how you were involved. Yeah, I got tired. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I mean, you I mean, you you are caring for somebody who's caring for somebody and you love both of them. Uh, it really put me in a in a situation where I had to be very sensitive, mm -hmm. I had to be very watchful, I had to be uh uh, very mindful of how I even approached Deborah and said things to Deborah uh, because I wanted her to know that I was going to be supportive of her. So it it, it caused me to shift. Um, it, it caused me to shift because I love both of them uh, to be in a different place in my head around this issue. I understood uh, what the challenges were. I, you know, I would learn more about the challenges, uh, you know, those kinds of things. So it was a very, it, it, I'm not telling you a lie. It was difficult. Yeah. It was difficult. But at the same time, uh, it was worth it because I was supporting people that I loved. Yeah. 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 That's the, that's the, mm -hmm. the common denominator across all of this is um, 
how you're connected with the people mm -hmm. that you're providing the care, mm -hmm. the care for. Michelle and 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 Deborah, um, we like to end our shows with um, a takeaway for our our audience. Um, that and then also, what is it that a show like Health Chatter can can help? So two things, uh, a takeaway. What's the one-liner that you want the audience to really know? Let's start with Michelle on that one. I struggle with one-liners because I'm a storyteller by profession. <laughs> That's a challenge for me, but we'll try. All right, um, we'll see how good you are at it. Preparation, literally preparation, uh, learning. And, and again, learning for me is understanding the, the, the issues that my parents are facing, understanding what the, the options are, learning about things like show timing, and, um, which is a dementia-related term, uh, learning about things like um, just how to be more understanding of the person that you're struggling with. I mean, I, I learning, just learning um, all the yeah. things that you possibly can, because that for me helps make sense of things in my mind. Um, if I can better understand where they are, even if they can't understand where they are, then I can, I can, I know better when to step in and when to step back. Um, you know, the reading books that like the book I keep talking about, the loving someone with dementia, I cannot possibly tout that book enough because it's just the, the little terms that are helpful, like um, ambiguous loss is the term that that book kind of relates to, which is you have this person who is still here, but not, you don't know how long it's going to be uh, going on the way it is. You don't know how much more difficulty there will be, or if it's going to get better. I'm always hoping it's going to get better. Like magically someday we're just going to have this great relationship and it's all going to be smooth sailing and all good. Um, but you just have to learn, in my opinion, you just learn as much as you can about the things, the resources, the options, the progression of things, if you will. Um, learn from others who have been there, <clears throat> ask the hard questions, talk to the professionals, listen to the professionals when they say, um, you need to step back because it's not going well. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. So I know that's not a one-liner, but just learn, absorb, accept you're not always going to have closure you're not always going to get answers you're not always going to understand maybe not now maybe not ever but you just have to manage yeah <laughs> as well yeah. as you can deborah what's what do you think our audience should really know going forward be, here be flexible as mm. much as you plan it may not turn out that way everything that we plan just like life it just doesn't turn out that way. So be flexible. Learn how to pivot. As uh, the friend show, pivot, pivot. You got to learn how to pivot. <laughs> and, that, and boy, I'll tell you that 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 that's good for a lot of things, really. When you when you when you think about it, you know, um, a common denominator that I've I've heard here, Clarence, you can you can um, think about this too, is the idea of. Um, of trust and how that that plays out with the the person or persons you're providing care for the um, other family members that are trying to to help the um, the healthcare providers that you're trying to get information from that's a big 
trust building job. And, and I think Deborah, to your point is, is go with the flow, be flexible, can really help with that a lot. Um, then finally, what do you think our health chatter show can help with going forward? Michelle, unless we're um, doing it already. I think, I actually think this is a big part of it because a lot of people um, don't understand the statistics behind, I actually heard a statistic, um, I think it's caregiver.org that said it was a, there was a 56% higher mortality rate, if you will, people that are caregivers Stress. having health issues and passing even before the people they're caring for. Yeah. Um, wow. And I, and I, I don't know if that, how accurate that is. The point is I've heard all kinds of statistics with regard to caregiver issues, health issues. We tend to not even take as, as much care of ourselves because we just don't have the energy anymore. And I can tell you having had many nights where I'm sitting on the sofa at the end of the day, numb with disbelief. I, you know, you don't have the energy. Um, so the resources, uh, senior linkage, all the things that, that we've sort of tried to go through, everything has a limit, including us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so if there are resources and, and even just these stories that people, you know, when they, when you do start connecting the dots with other people who are in your same scenario, it is helpful to hear other stories. It is helpful to hear other experiences, but resources are a big, big thing. Yeah. Um, it's tough to find, it's tough to find the right one and it's tough to find anything that has anything other than a link to a website <laughs> and a recorded line on the other end. That's the, that, that's the hard part. So groups like Deborah mentioned, um, you know, that would be great. Any resources like that, that, that are there, because I think if people understand, because we all assume that we're in this to win this and we're all in it to do it because we need to, and our parents need us and our loved ones need us. And, and that's the truth. But um, if you would have told me a year and a half ago that I would be here today, I would never have believed it. And I think there are a lot of people who are in our same shoes who are still in the, you know, a month in or, or six months in and they're like, nope, that's okay. We're almost there. You know, they don't see the snowball heading down the mountain at them, you know, at box speed. They don't see it because um, we all want to be positive and we all want to yeah. do what we can. So resources in, in any way. <laughs> so Deborah, health chatter, what can health chatter provide? I would say keep the conversation going. There is no cure for this disease. And mm -hmm. the more that we talk about it, the more others will be aware that they may have to travel down this journey and they may not be prepared. I think the more you talk about it, and as Michelle said, do storytelling about it, um, others will hopefully grab hold of the information and reach back and get it, use it when they need it. Um, I often talk about a toolbox. I have a lot of things in my toolbox and most of my experiences and conversations I keep in that toolbox because I never know when I'm, I'm going to need that. And yep. I know that being in that caregivers group, I would go and sit in that group. I wouldn't say a lot, but when it came time for me, I had tools to use that helped me and open conversation with your families. I know that's very hard. Everybody's family makeup is so different but it helps yeah, when you can yeah. sit down and have those conversations. And remember most of all that actions from those who have disease 
it's not really their heart, it's the disease. Yeah. And I think that should there should be some laws that we take a look at because people who are trying to help their family members are, are bound um, or handcuffed because they cannot really act on the best interest because the disease is there in that family member who has the control and they're not doing it in their best interest. You know, um, if either one of you have particular resources that you think are really, really good based on, on your experience, please share them with Clarence or I, and we'll make sure that we get it on the, on the Health Chatter website and make that available to our, our listening audience. I really wanna thank both of you, um, perhaps, and I hope that um, by telling the story, um, your stories and your experiences has been helpful for you too, okay? Because sometimes just saying it out loud to people that are willing to listen, not just us that are, are recording this show, but also the listening audience um, should be comforting to you. And, and I hope that that is the case. Clarence, parting thought. Yeah, just want to say thank both of you for your stories. And uh, we look forward to hearing from others uh, about their experiences and we're working hard to make a healthy community. So thank you again for sharing. Thank Absolutely. You. Keep health chatting away, everybody. Our next show um, that Clarence and I are gonna dive into will be not an easy one either. It'll be on racism. And so we hope that uh, we'll have some open, honest conversation about that. So until then, keep health chatting away. 